Thanks, Jake. Well, good morning. Welcome. So, uh, we're doing a little giveaway today. We're not doing books, though. We have new Vine t-shirts. Give it up. Yep. And uh, where's Justin at? Where you at? Right here. Everyone look and stare at Justin. Got the cap on. He designed these for us. He's a, a magnificent artist. These are going to be unveiled next week with more details, but um, you'll hear about these next week. This is just a little preview of things to come. Uh, this one is a woman's size. So, yep. Oh, not a woman. You can give it to Morgan. And this one's a man's size. There you go. Asher, your dad made that. You get all those that you want. Okay. You can still have it. Okay. Uh, we got a lot of work to do, so let's, let's dive in. If you have a Bible, um, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're new here, I'm Zach. I'm one of the pastors, and we've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter. And today, uh, we are in the section in chapter 2, starting in verse 18. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 18. Now, we need to go back and remind ourselves, what is the context? And it's very important for us to know that what was said last week, what is said this week, what is said next week, and the week after, all stands on the shoulders of verse 12, okay? So look at verse 12. Peter has, a, has an objective in mind, and, and that is this. He's writing to uh, ancient Christians about 2,000 years ago in what is modern-day Turkey and churches in the region um, of, he's, he's told us, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these are ancient Christians that he's writing to, okay? And he tells them this in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, just unbelievers, people, people that don't love Jesus. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or unbelievers honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he's just going to go and talk about what that looks like. He's very interested in what honorable conduct looks like. And last week we talked about what, what does honorable conduct in reference to the government look like. But the whole objective is this. Honorable conduct has a missional purpose. You see that there? Because there's people that don't agree with the Christian worldview and they're going to say nasty things about you. But if they see something different in the way that you conduct yourself, that has a strong evangelistic purpose. They may look at your conduct and go, wow, something's different here. There's a heart change here. This Jesus thing, there's maybe, maybe there's something to it. That's what Peter has in mind, okay? So honorable conduct is kind of the heading over all of this in light of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he does by his spirit in the lives of those who follow him. So today, that has an application that is challenging. So let's read, starting in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to hear? Would you fill in the space between 
um, what I say and what people hear with the power of your spirit this morning. We want to be aligned to your word. We want to hear from you. Lord, we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what Peter is saying here, look at the text, to this original audience is that if you're a Christian slave, you should respect your master even if they're unjust. Even if they're unjust. So the first word, servants, could be literally translated domestic slaves. So a slave that lives in your house. Now this is hard for us to read, is it not? It's hard for us to read. It's a hard text. So let's, let's tackle some challenges right out of the gate. The first thing I think it's important to know is that this word servant or servant master, slave master, slave and master, obviously is going to be heard maybe differently by a minority among us this morning. If you're a minority person, if you're African-American, given our American history, the way you read this text on a surface level is going to be really challenging, right? See, the American backdrop of race-based chattel slavery that was legal springs to mind. And that's a source of much grieving, as it should be. So it's truly a horror. And so those of you in majority culture, when you read this, it's really important to keep that in mind so you can be empathetic, so you can be compassionate. So next question, does, does the Bible condone slavery? There's other texts that talk about slaves and masters too in the Bible. Now we give a whole sermon on that text or, I'm sorry, on that question alone. We don't have time for that because that's not really the point of the text. But because it's such a um, challenging thing for us in our culture and time and space, given our background, I think it's really important that we talk about it. No, the Bible does not condone slavery as a good thing. But then we wonder, and I wonder, I wondered this week as I'm working on this and wrestling through this text, why didn't Peter write, okay, first church, in Cappadocia, first church in Bithynia 2,000 years ago. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to resist and overthrow the culture structures of the day. Because they are unjust. That's what I want you to do. He didn't write that. That's what we want him to write. That's what I want him to write. So I think it's really important for us to understand at least one angle when we read texts like this that can help us. Okay. And there's a lot more to say. If you have questions, hit me up after the church service. Hit me up on Slack, okay? So here's the one thing we got to understand. We talk about this all the time. It's very important again here. When you are seeking to understand the Bible, you always want to understand the Bible based on how the first audience understood it. And you don't start with yourself. So you always start with them then, the first audience, before us now. Them then, before us now. A very, very important rule for understanding your Bible. How can we place ourselves in the shoes of the original audience? Their culture, their time, their presuppositions, their ideas, okay? So who were these people? That's what we got to know first before we interpret it for ourselves. It's very important to remember that these people were not 21st century Americans with a background in their history of like 1850s type chattel slavery, the first audience of this text were who? They were a small, tiny minority under the rule and reign of the mighty Roman Empire. Okay? So one of the things that that means is they didn't live in a democracy. 
They had no voice. They had no power when it comes to political change. So we can't read our Bibles with a democracy as our filter. You with me? For the original audience, the, the power was solely in the hands, the ruthless hand of the Roman Empire. So it's very, very different context than we live in today. Okay? Let me give you an illustration. So this week, uh, this past Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And we gathered our kids around uh, part of our family devotions before we prayed, before we put them to bed, is we watched Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Very, very important. If you haven't sat down and watched the whole thing, just go home on YouTube today and do it. And we talked about it. And I've got white kids and I have a black daughter. And so it should be important for all families uh, in light of our culture, but it's, you know, really, really important for us, obviously. So there's so many horrors that were endured by those folks in 1953 and obviously before that. Dogs attacked them when they protested. Fire hoses turned on them during pe- peaceable demonstrations. Beatings and, and, and even lynchings at times. And Martin Luther King Jr., obviously, as we know, was shot, assassinated because of his resistance. Yet here's the, here's the, the difference between... Bible culture and and our culture, even in 1953, the I Have a Dream speech was still permitted. And there were thousands of people, on on YouTube you'll see it, thousands of people that were in the audience that day celebrating what Martin Luther King Jr. was saying. And that speech radiated out, and it still radiates to this day. So our culture back then was blatantly racist, racist. But still, there was an opportunity for for Martin Luther King Jr. to get up and speak. His voice was silenced, in a sense, but not that day. The government did not silence him and all those people on that day in 1953. But here's the difference between Bible culture, first century Rome, and our culture in 1953. There was never going to be an I have a dream speech in first century Rome. I'm not trying to diminish in the least what was endured by African Americans in our culture, you know, 60, 70, 100, 120 years ago. All I'm trying to, d- to show you is there's a difference in culture, a very significant culture, and that's this. In first century Rome, they did not take kindly in the least to any hint of resistance. If you organized a march on Rome... That was not going to end well for you. The Romans were known to round people up that resisted, like structurally resisted, organized resistance, round them all up and crucify them. That was not out of the question for them. Our, our, our culture is horrific at times, but it's not that. That's a different t- kind of culture when it comes to resisting government. Those who resisted were swiftly reminded they had no voice, they had no power And the only choice is to acquiesce or die. That's the culture that Peter's writing to. So we can't read this through our American democratic experience. You have to think resist or die. You have to think powerless to change anything in the short term. So Christians didn't have the power or voice to do what Martin Luther King Jr. did in their time and space. They had no power for short-term change. 
And, and so that's part of the reason why Peter doesn't write to the church, here's what you need to do, guys. You need to seek to change the laws of the land when it comes to slavery. That wasn't one of their choices. And I believe that what he believed from the Lord was that if the church of Jesus Christ was going to march into the future, there was going to be, there's going to have to be a different tactic than overthrowing the government, than, than seeking to work this through the political process one that had more to do with inner transformation, working itself out slowly, patiently over time, and less about trying to change the outward political structures. That's not to say that in our time and space, we shouldn't work on political structures if we have a vote and a voice. We do use it. But that wasn't them. That wasn't them. That's very important to keep that in mind. There wasn't any voting in the Roman Empire. There wasn't any, like, appeal to your congressman in the Roman Empire. So that's kind of the background of this text that we always have to keep in mind when we read about slavery here. It's hard for us to understand. But here's the deal. We don't have official government-sanctioned slavery in our culture. So how do we make sense of this text? How do we apply this text to our lives? I think the, the closest thing that we have is probably the employee-employer relationship. And that's how we're going to approach this today, Okay. So given the nature of the text, here, here's how I think we should read this for application for ourselves. If I, as a Christian, find myself not in slavery, but I'm stuck in a, in a certain job, okay, with no other alternatives, and I have an unjust boss, how am I going to respond? See, if you're stuck in injustice and, and there's nothing you can really do, you're voiceless and you're powerless, what are you going to do? How do you carry yourself? And why do you carry yourself the way that you do? Very important questions that Peter is addressing this morning. Now, I know that even what I said there is hard for us because most of us in the room probably have some sense of upward mobility. That's just the culture of this church in a lot of ways. You guys are middle class. You make decent money. If you have an unjust boss, you just get another job, right? But there's going to come a time when the principles of this text, whether it's an unjust boss or not, is going to land in your neighborhood. Believe me, it's just a matter of time. So let's listen in. I, I think one of the, the analogies, though, could be like this. And this kind of situation may come upon you someday. Maybe it's come upon you in the last 10 years or so. But in 2008... I was living in Albuquerque at the time, and I had a really good friend that was a high-end cabinet maker. And he was typically hired by general contractors who were building really high-end houses uh, to come in and do the high-end cabinetry in kitchens. And they were doing really well. But then, as everyone knows, 2008 comes and the economy tanks. And so all of a sudden, general contractors aren't building houses anymore. And so he's not getting hired anymore to do what he does, do his skill. So his business went under in a hurry. And it was really tough times for my friend. Now, my friend had to find work, but work was really hard to come by in light of the economic situation because every general contractor is just struggling to hold on, and they're in a hiring freeze. So let's say my friend finds a job, and it's a decent job, enough to feed the family and pay the mortgage in light of this tumultuous economic situation. But the problem is that his new boss at his new job 
that was really hard to find is a complete jerk. And he's unpredictable, and he's never happy, and he's spiteful, and he's rude, and, he's, and, he's, and he flies off the handle at the slightest inconvenience to him for any reason. The boss does not care about justice whatsoever. What, what's my friend going to do? Have you been in a situation like that ever? He doesn't have a lot of choices because there aren't any jobs for his skill set. And he's got to keep the mortgage payment going, right? He's kind of stuck. He's got really no choice but to endure. So now the question becomes how? And why do I endure? How do I endure? And what's my motivation? Where does that come from? When you're stuck in a situation and you're suffering, and you're stuck in a certain job and your boss is a jerk. Well, let's take a look. That's kind of the heart of this text. Servants, verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Look at verse 19 and 20. Twice he says there that this is a gracious thing. So he's obviously repeating this for the sake of emphasis. He really believes this is a gracious thing. What is? To suffer injustice? Really? How in the world is that a gracious thing? Peter, have you lost your mind? What is going on here? Well, I don't think Peter's lost his mind. I think he's swimming in the deep end of the pool theologically that's hard for us at times. Look at verse 19 again. I I think this one short phrase is the key to finding grace in the midst of suffering. Maybe unjustly in the workplace or anywhere else. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. When mindful of who? Of God. When mindful of God. When literally my mind is full of of God, where God is my all-consuming passion, where his name and his renown is the joy of my heart. When I'm consumed with him, when I'm mindful of him and not myself, when I'm mindful of him and not necessarily the horror of my situation, I'm mindful of him. When that is the case, how does that affect how you endure unjust suffering in the workplace or anywhere else where you're stuck and powerless or voiceless? Peter tells us, verse 21, For to this you've been called. Because Christ, I've been called to what? I've been called to sometimes endure unjust suffering. That's what Peter's saying here. That's the this, for to this, verse 21. For to this you have been called. See that there? Why? Well, here's why. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now hear this. It's a grace to you when, when you're powerless and you suffer. It's grace because this reminds you of Jesus. He made himself powerless and suffered the ultimate injustice. And, and you're reminded of Jesus as you're reminded of Jesus. This conforms you to the crucified life that Jesus experienced. And when you conform to the Jesus-shaped crucified life, that's grace to you. In, in a completely countercultural, 
run against the grain of our sinful nature type way. Let me say that again. Enduring unjust suffering at times is a grace to you when you're powerless and you suffer unjustly because this reminds you of Jesus, okay? Because he himself, that's what Peter's saying in verse 21, he himself was made powerless and suffered the ultimate injustice. It doesn't get more unjust than sinless God himself treated as a, as a horrible criminal. That's the most unjust act ever perpetrated on the face of the planet. Sinless perfection treated as the worst of sinners. And as you're reminded of this, as you meditate on this, this conforms you. This helps you conform to the crucified life that Jesus experienced. And when you conform to that, it's grace to you. It's, it's grace to you. So this is Peter's point. We get grace when we suffer unjustly because sometimes God ordains that we suffer in this way. Why? So that we could be like Jesus. See, here, here's something that's hard for us to hear, but it's so biblical. Oftentimes God is more interested in us conforming to the image of Jesus than us being comfortable. Sometimes Oftentimes, maybe I dare say, God is more interested in us being conformed to the image of Jesus because that's true grace, that's true life, than always making us comfortable. Does your following of Jesus have room for that? That's a, I mean, talk about, like, carrying your cross and following Jesus, that's, that's one way to go about it. Ask yourself that question. Does my theology, does my discipleship, does my following of Jesus have room for the fact that God might be more interested in my conforming to his image than my comfort? I think it's really biblical. Just Let me give you one supporting text. This is Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God. So we're supposed to look like God. Well, why would we do that? Well, because we're beloved children. See that? We're not trying to prove anything. We're just being who we are. You can be an imitator of God because you're secure. You're beloved of God. You have a great dad. So he says, be like me because I love you. You're free to be like me and, and, and walk in love. Well, what does love mean? Well, here's what love means. It means Sometimes enduring unjust suffering, because that's what Jesus did. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. See that? An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So the whole agenda that God has for us is that we look like Jesus. Imitators of God. And Peter's saying when we endure unjust suffering in the workplace or out of the workplace, we have a huge opportunity where our godly, honorable conduct will look really beautiful. Confusing, maybe, but beautiful to an onlooking world. This is grace. This is grace. This is grace. For, verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And it might be painful at times. We don't diminish the fact that this is painful at times. 
God knows the pain of unjust suffering. And he promises to be with you in it. The Bible says over and over again that he's near to the brokenhearted. He's, he's the voice to the voiceless. He will comfort the powerless. So let's keep reading. Verse 22, Peter continues to paint a vivid Jesus picture to remind them with, with crystal clarity, here's what Jesus-like submission looks like. Here's what honorable conduct looks like, verse 12. Here's how you're going to have an onlooking world look in at you and go, there's something different here. I don't know what it is, but I'm interested. Verse 22, in light of unjust suffering, here's what Jesus did. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Let's stop right there. So when faced with injustice in our lives, how quickly sin can be our response, right? But Jesus, what does it say? He committed no sin. What do we want to do? We want to gossip when we're treated unjustly. I can't believe what my boss did today. Such an idiot. Subversion. Sulking. And I'm guilty of all that stuff. And the Bible says Jesus did none of these things when he was subjected to unjust suffering. We could also be tempted to lie. See what it says? Neither was deceit found in his mouth. So your boss comes to you and, and, and you find out that he doesn't really like Christians. And he asks you or she asks you, so I heard you maybe go to church or something. Are you Christian? And what do you say? Because that could have ramifications for how you're treated at work. So what are you going to say? Is deceit found in, in our mouths? Do we lie for the sake of our comfort? Or do we pursue the Jesus path? For the sake of obtaining more grace. Verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Reviled, did not revile in return. Man, someone speaks bad about me. How often do I want to lash out in return? Someone treats me bad. You know, I have those, like, imaginary conversations in my head of how I'm just going to, like, tell them off. You never do it, but you love having those conversations in your head with me. You rehearse that speech, man, you got it down. How often you, like, just go off on that person in your head, right? We, we do that. You can admit that. But Jesus, he was reviled. He did not revile in return. He did not threaten. Man, our revenge impulse is so quick, is it not? Where did that come from? It comes from a sinful heart, right? But Jesus did none of these things. He did not threaten. See, our revenge rarely makes us feel better. It just makes you feel more empty. It doesn't accomplish anything at all. But here's what accomplishes something. This is a powerful, powerful part of this verse. Look at verse 23. Here's what Jesus did. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? And if you're going to tattoo a verse on your arm, this is the one. I'm serious, because this will give you perseverance and sustenance in the day of trial. But continued, here's what he did. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting, meaning it was like a habitual, ongoing thing. This was how he carried himself. This was Jesus' lifestyle. I'm not going to trust in all these people, this craziness around me. Where am I going to trust? I'm going to trust in God who judges justly. 
See, I don't have to pursue justice in this situation, whatever it may be, right now, because I know that one day justice is coming. And, and I don't have to demand my rights right now, because I know that one day my joy will be restored and all things being made right. And I don't have to be riddled with anxiety right now due to my lack of control in the situations of injustice, because I know for sure that God is going to suss this whole thing out in the future. And I will day after day after day remind myself that I trust who? I trust King Jesus. And one day King Jesus is going to return and make all this right. I don't know how. And I don't know when. He hasn't given me the timetable. But I know it's a promise. I'm entrusting myself to him. He will judge. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus trusted in. That's what he calls us to trust in. We entrust ourselves to him who will one day make all things right and judge justly. And my friends, this right here is the fight of faith. This is the fight of faith. When we surrender and say, God, this situation I'm in, I hate it. And everything within me wants to sin and lash out and complain and take matters into my own hands, Lord. But you've told me to wait on you and your justice, Lord. I want to trust you by faith. Will you help me? I believe. Help my unbelief. See, that kind of posture, that kind of surrender. See, this is when the bittersweet but beautiful tears of submission fill our eyes in the waiting room of God's justice. You with me? See, it's the waiting that's the hardest part of entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. It's the waiting that's the hardest part. That's why I say it's a fight of faith. It's a fight of faith. But man, there's so much blessing in there for us. But I think this is hard for us to swallow in our culture just in light of the context that we live in. Here's what I mean. In our, in our culture, we're so focused, I talked about this last week, based on just how our country was founded, we're so focused on our freedom and our rights. We're all about our rights. Man, if something goes wrong, man, I'll sue you. You know? I deserve this, I'm owed this, how dare you even hint at mistreatment of me? Don't you know who I am? that justice impulse runs deep within us. And that, make no mistake, that can be a really good thing. But it can be a really bad thing, too. To the degree that we feel a sense of entitlement. Maybe even entitlement before God. Like, God, how dare you put me in this situation? How dare you make my marriage hard or my parenting hard or my boss be a jerk or, or whatever. Like, God, how dare you put me in this situation? I don't deserve suffering. How dare you infringe on my rights? I deserve ease. Is that the heart of the Christian gospel? That it's all about your rights? If you want your rights, your real rights before God, he could have given that to you. 
right? The only thing we have a right to is hell. Sinners have a right for justice. You know what justice is? It's hell. But remember, the gospel is this. The heart of the gospel is that the most powerful person in the universe laid down his rights to save those who were powerless. Right? And if we really know this, we'll carry ourselves a little differently when someone seems to encroach on our rights. So should we fight injustice? Yes and amen a thousand times yes. God hates injustice. Micah 6.8, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's a command for God's people. It's clear in the Bible. And in a democracy, we have a voice. We have a privilege of oftentimes being able to bring about change and have our voices heard. I mean, we saw that all over social media or news yesterday in the marches post-inauguration, right? But listen to me. It's very important. There's going to be times they've happened or will happen in all of our lives when there's going to be injustice perpetrated against you, maybe in the workplace or outside of the workplace, and there's just simply not anything that you can do about it. So how do you respond in those situations? How do you carry yourself in those situations? What are you going to do? In 2006, we were moving from Nashville to Albuquerque, and I had loaded up uh, my two young kids at the time uh, about, let's see, help me out here, two and pregnant? You are pregnant right now? Oh. You were pregnant. So we had, we, had, we had Taylor, very young, and Kim's pregnant in the, in the van and with her mom, and uh, I'm in the big, huge moving truck, 26-footer, every known possession we have, game of Tetris fitting in this thing, right? And we're, we're tra- traversing, like, basically the whole United States from Nashville over to Albuquerque, Interstate 40, straight shot, two 10-hour days. We get to the wasteland of eastern New Mexico. I don't know if you've ever been out there. If you've been to West Texas, it's basically the same. Um, there's nothing out there. Think biblical wilderness. That's eastern New Mexico, okay? Desolate wasteland. That's where the devil tempted Jesus. It was, it, there's nothing out there. There's nothing out there. And so as, as um, I guess I should say as God's sovereignty would have it, uh, the truck breaks down. And we're out in the middle of nowhere, three, about three hours from Albuquerque. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to have my, my little baby and my pregnant wife and her, mo- and her mom sitting on the side of the road with me. And so I just send them on to Albuquerque thinking, you know, they're, they'll just, if whatever happens, they'll at the end of the day tow me back to Albuquerque and it'll be fine. Because I had everything. I, I didn't even, t- I, I kept their luggage. They didn't have clean clothes. They didn't have anything. And they're going to an empty house, Okay. So I get on the, the phone with the, like, person in the cubicle answering for the rental company. And I'm like, well, I need to, you guys to come help me out. And they're like, well, at the end of the day, um, we can't uh, send you to Albuquerque. You're going to have to take you back to Amarillo. Don't send me back to Yellow. Don't send me back to Amarillo. You guys with me? Yellow, Spanish? Okay. Um, don't send me back there. Like, that's, 
Because, like, I got my whole family going to an empty house, and they have nothing. And why would you say, well, because the nearest place where you can get the truck fixed is back in Amarillo. And I'm like, no, 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 like, don't send me back there. Just send me to Albuquerque. And so they send the truck driver, or the, the tow truck driver, and technically this truck is their property. So I can't do anything. I'm powerless in this situation, right? I'm not going to, like, assault this guy, you know. And he's taking the truck with all of my stuff in it. And so I've got to, like, just submit and take it. But, like, I'm on the phone with this person in the, in the cubicle, like, no, 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 you got to understand the situation. You don't want to take me back because we're almost, like, it's almost the same distance back to Amarillo or Albuquerque. Like, I know you're just following policy. I kept asking, like, can I talk to a manager? Can I talk to someone above your head? Can I talk to a manager? No, you can't do that. No, but literally, like, there's a time to, like, break policy. No, I can't let you talk to my manager. No, but listen, this is, this is a unique situation. I'm just on and on and on. No, you can't talk to the manager. No, you can't talk to the manager. No, you can't. I'm just, like, freaking out on the side of the road in eastern New Mexico. So the, truck, the, the tow truck driver shows up, and, like, he, he's, like, apologetic. But he's, like, dude. I'm taking this thing. Sorry. So, like, what am I going to do? So I get to Amarillo, and they're looking for someone to fix this truck. It's a Friday, the weekend. I'm raging on, on, to the Red Oak Company, and, and, and they put me up in a hotel. They paid for my meals. Two days, I'm sitting there. While I'm sitting there, I do a little research, and it turns out that they weren't telling me the truth. The kind of place that you have to take these trucks when they break down does also exist in Albuquerque. So now I'm really mad. Like, but the policy is wherever you break down, you have to go to the closest place. And I, and I broke down almost exactly in the middle, but 40 miles closer to Amarillo. So they took me back and, 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 and hold me up there for two days, paid for my lodging and my food, and had to listen to me complain over and over again on, the, on, their, on, their, on their headset in their cubicle. And at the end of those two days, they couldn't find anybody to fix the truck. And what did they do? They towed me. They towed that truck again to Albuquerque. So I'm just like, seriously? So I'm like, I'm, I'm not paying a cent for this. You know what I mean? I'm like so mad. And so I, once we get it all s- sussed out, I, I call and talk to the customer complaint section or whatever of the rental company. And this this woman that I talked to, she's obviously been trained to deal with irate customers, and I'm just raging. You know, I'm, 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 this is probably like the angriest I've ever been in my life because this is unjust. This is unjust. This is a complete unjust situation. And I'm not paying a cent for this. It's like a $1,000 bill. I'm not paying a cent for this. Well, the church was going to pay for it, but it's still the principle. You know, we're not paying a cent for this because this is wrong. You don't treat people like this. And it's just a dumb business decision. Like, why would you? Anyway. So she's just, like, stone cold, though. She's like, whatever. Like, we'll give you 25% discount. I'm like, no. I'm going to lawyer up, and I'm going to get you all. Like, I'm not going to lawyer up. But, I mean, I was saying all this dumb stuff, like, just threatening, angry, rights, 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 rights. And she just wasn't having it. She's like, all right, whatever. She, like, called my bluff. And I'm like, 25%. That's, So I was just consumed. I couldn't focus on my work. I was just like, oh, man, I just eating me alive. And, and sadly, I did not conduct myself honorably. I said things that were really inappropriate. Um, I just raged. Um, I did not carry myself in a way that honored the Lord in that si- situation. 
what would have been a better response? And honestly, there's way, way worse that people have endured throughout history. In that situation, I got to remind myself that Jesus himself had no choice but to submit to horrific injustice for the sake of providing salvation for his spiritual family. And I got to remind myself that my Savior laid down his rights so that what was rightfully due to sinful people didn't come to pass. See, there's a time to lay down our rights, and Jesus promises to draw near to us in these times, and he promises to one day make it all right. Every right will be wronged one day. We don't know how, we don't know when, but we know that his vengeance is always better than ours. So until that day, we hold on and we wait at times. And we huddle together and we wait. And we pray together and we wait. And we remind each other of Jesus and his suffering as we wait. And we rejoice as we wait, knowing that the presence of Jesus is so near to those who are brokenhearted. One day it will all be over and made right. In closing, Peter just wants to remind his first audience of the foundation of of all of this. And it's verse 24. Check it out. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That Why? Why did he do that? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep. You have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He just lays out the gospel and see again how Peter has these rich identity statements that fuel our obedience. Knowing who you are always connects to how you live. You got to know who you are. And he reminds them, this is who you are. Who are you? You've died to sin. You've been healed. You've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is who you are. So you don't have to go back to the old way of life that lusted after revenge, that raged at the slightest injustice to you. Man, I've failed in these areas. We've failed in these areas. But Peter reminds us, if you love Jesus and you treasure him in his gospel, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. You're a new creation, so he calls us to live like it. Endlessly fantasizing about revenge will just make you miserable, but entrusting yourself to him who judges justly makes you like Jesus, and that is grace to us. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help in these things. They're hard for us to hear, but we know that you love to draw near to those who ask for it. And so we ask for your help by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.